But this week, um, we're in part three of a four-part series um, called If Only You Were Normal Like Me, right? Um, uh, And today, we're going to talk about something that's kind of near and dear to my heart. It's near and dear to our heart as a church. Um, And I'm going to use this ladder as a prop. Some of you didn't hear anything I said for the last four minutes because you're like, what's that ladder there for, right? This ladder, it's, it's an imperfect metaphor, okay? I, I will fully admit that. Um, this ladder is going to represent spiritual growth, okay? So, so you, could, you could say that spiritual growth, as you grow in your love and knowledge for God, your love for other people, that you're going up the ladder. Like, like you're taking a step up. And I'm making some of you nervous now. I was like, how high is he going to go? You can go to church tomorrow. You can say, my pastor got high in service yesterday. <laughs> Sorry about that one. Um, but we also understand like spiritual growth is not as consistent and lineal as that. Sometimes you get stuck. Sometimes you, your faith gets stagnant. Right? And sometimes, if we're completely honest, it feels like it's more like this. It feels like you're, it feels like you're retreating. It feels like you're, you're it's, not, it's, not, it's not even that you're stagnant or stuck. You're, you're actually going backwards. Right? So, so again, for the, for the conversation today, this is going to stay here. And it's just going to represent like environments where people can grow in their faith, but there's also this other thing where there are some environments where growth gets stifled or growth gets stuck. There are some environments that are like greenhouses, and then there are some environments like Antarctica trying to grow grapefruit, right? It's just, there's, there's both of those. And as I was thinking about this week, it's like, because of what I do and because of my job, like I'm thinking about church, and, and many of you, so many of you, you've, you've, you've had backgrounds where you've been a part of churches where like the environment is like a greenhouse. There's so much growth happening, but then there's churches like it just stifles. It doesn't, there's, there's no growth. And, and for whatever reason, I'm not, I don't want to point fingers. And I don't want to say that, you know, so-and-so churches there, they, 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 nobody can grow there. That's not what I'm saying. But we all understand that there are environments where it's like a greenhouse and there are other environments where it doesn't. So I, I came up with a list. Um, some characteristics on my growth list. An environment that's gracious, where, where people are gracious to each other. Um, an environment that speaks truth in a loving way. Like we can speak truth, but we can be, do it in a loving way. Uh, an environment that's patient with people. Understanding that we're all radically flawed. And sometimes we grow at a snail's pace. Um, an environment that is forgiving, an environment that's hopeful, um, an environment that's humble. You put all of those together consistently, and I'm sure there's more, that, that creates kind of like this greenhouse for spiritual growth. And then there's characteristics on the, the stifle list. Um, a church that's gossipy, that talks about people rather than to them. Um, it's hyper-perfectionistic. Like everyone has to measure up or at least pretend to measure up. This is hyper-perfectionistic thing to it. Um, there's an environment that's impatient and it's not hopeful and it's unforgiving. And, and you could make your own list from your experiences, right? And, and by the way, I just want to say this. This has nothing to do with church size. 
has nothing to do with church size. There are very, very healthy churches that are very, very large. And there are very, very unhealthy churches that are very, very small. There is no church size that has a corner on the market or a monopoly on dysfunction (laughs) or health. Has nothing to do with church size. So um, I I want us to explore this idea today. At the end of the message, I'm actually going to, giving you just a heads up here, I'm going to ask you a very pointed personal question about you and about how you and 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 you makes us and how that can, can affect us as a church, the we as a church. Okay, so the way we're going to do that is we're just going to take the next step in our series. We're going to look at 1 Corinthians 9. If you have a Bible or a mobile device, you want to follow along. Um, just got to warn you, like Paul writes pretty technically here. Um, that you guys know, for those of you who read the Bible before, there are sections of scripture that you get to and you're like, oh yeah, this makes perfect sense. Yeah, I got this. I don't have any questions about this. That's not 1 Corinthians 9. Um, it's, a, it's, it's a little more technical. So I want to I wanna go back, and some of this is review, but I want to deal with a little bit of background. I want to deal with a little bit of culture, and then I want to deal with a little bit of conflict. Okay? So background, culture, conflict. All right. 1 Corinthians is a letter written to the people in the city of... Nailed it. Way to go. Good job. Corinth, right? Um, Corinth is this little city in um, southern Greece on this little sliver of land. It separates northern Greece from southern Greece. Uh, We think that Paul visited Corinth about 20 years after the resurrection. Um, Paul's kind of idea was to visit these major metropolitan areas where there was a lot of people and start these little ecclesias these little Jesus communities, these little churches. Um, and, and, and Corinth was one of those places that he visited. Um, if you were with us the first week, and remember, what's one of the first thing that Paul did when he got to Corinth? He got a job. That's right, he got a job. He got a job. Um, he, he's a tent maker, and we find out in Acts 18 that he's his tent maker, and he, he, he teams up with this couple, Aquila and Priscilla, who were also tent makers. And he would make tents during the week. And then on the Sabbath, on Saturday, which was his Sabbath, he would teach. He would preach in the synagogue. He would try to reason with people. Um, so he's got two jobs, tent making and preaching. For those of you who have ever had two jobs, maybe you had two jobs in college. You were a full-time student and you worked to pay for college. Um, maybe you've had two jobs before to get out of debt. Maybe you've had two jobs before to, to, to try and get enough money for something, okay? Those of you who've had two jobs, did you do that for fun? No, right? You did that because it was a necessity. You did it because you had to. Paul worked two jobs. Why? Was it fun or was it necessity? We're going to come back to that in a minute, but I'm telling you, it had to do with the latter. It had to do with helping create this environment in Corinth where people could grow in their faith. So that's the background. Let's talk culture for a second. Um, if you were here last week, showed you the flyover of the city of Corinth. 
um, saw the architecture, you saw the temples, you saw, we looked at a, a picture of the ruins of the, um, the Agora, the marketplace, um, just all kinds of just this expansive city. Um, and we don't know for sure, but there were dozens and dozens of temples all throughout Corinth because there are dozens and dozens of gods in Greek mythology and in Egyptian mythology and in Canaanite uh, mythology. So there's all these temples in Corinth. So question, how do you know which temple to go to? How do you know where to go to church or to go to sacrifice? Well, it depended on what you wanted. If you're a businessman um, getting ready to export goods uh, across the Mediterranean Sea down to Egypt, um, you would go to the temple of Poseidon, the god of the sea. And you would offer a sacrifice there to Poseidon to appease him because you want your ships to get to Egypt. Um, if, you were, if you had a disease or maybe your kid broke his arm, you would go to the temple of Asclepios, the god of healing, and you would make this clay mold of your kid's arm and you would leave it there at the altar to Asclepios so he would constantly see this and he would hopefully heal your child's broken arm. The choice in worship depended on what you wanted. Does that sound like a culture you know about? The place where you went to worship depended on what you wanted. It was very you-centric. And Paul, the Jew who worshiped how many gods? One. Shows up in Corinth. And he sees all of these people going to all of these temples, trying to please all of these gods. And he goes, no. No, 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 no. The gospel, the good news that I've come to proclaim is that Jesus came to sacrifice himself for you so you don't have to sacrifice to him. That, that, that the good news of the gospel is not that God loves you because you're good. The good news of the gospel is that God loves you because he's good. <laughs> because he is good. He gives and he gives and he gives. He's given since the beginning of time. And then in a moment of time, he gave his one and only son, Jesus, who offered himself for you. And there were people from that kind of background, from that kind of culture, that believed this, that responded to the good news, radically different from the idol system that they'd been so accustomed to. Which brings us to the third thing, the conflict. Because there are people coming out of, the con out of this, this idol system that they'd been accustomed to their entire life, and they started to, to make these community of Jesus followers. And, and some of them viewed the idol system different than others. Part of the idol system was you take your sacrifice to the temple, um, you offer it, the priest takes it, kills it, carves it up. Um, they keep some portion of the meat, but the portion that they don't keep, they take it to the marketplace, they sell it. And we looked at the question last week, okay, as a Jesus follower in Corinth, when you go to the market, Apollo burgers or no? Like Poseidon steaks or no? Can we do the Asclepios lamb chops? Because they're on sale for like $3.99 a dozen. Can we do that or can we not? And one group said, absolutely. 
Absolutely. That, that hunk of wood, that hunk of marble, just saying a whole bunch of mumbo jumbo in front of that hunk of wood doesn't contaminate the meat. Eat up. Right? The other group said, no, 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 no. No. That meat, that idol system, those, those false gods represented spiritual darkness in my life. And I feel like when I'm around it, like I'm compromising. I'm compromising my, my newfound faith in Jesus. So, so no, I don't think we should. And both sides are looking at each other going, if only you were normal like me. They saw the issue from radically different perspectives. And if you were with us last week, if you want to go back and read 1 Corinthians 8, Paul starts to deal with that issue in 1 Corinthians 8. And the issue that we're going to see him continue today with is rights. That's what the issue was about. The, the, the you know, Team Apollo burger, the people from perspective number one would say, we have a right to eat this. Paul, you've talked about freedom in Christ. We should be able to eat those steaks. And Paul is about to say, you're right. You absolutely have a right to eat those. You have freedom in Christ. But sometimes, in order to create an environment where people can grow, sometimes, in, in order to create the kind of church here in Corinth where those people who are coming out of the idol system and they look at you and they're like, does he even love Jesus? In order to help them, you need to set your rights aside. And, and the way that we're going to have to figure that out is you, if you want to help people advance up the faith ladder, you're going to have to understand when to express your rights, where to express your rights, how to express your rights, and when and where and how not to. That's what Paul deals with in 1 Corinthians 9. So I'd imagine Paul saying to himself, okay, I need an example of this. Um, and the example he comes up with, they're found in 1 Corinthians 9, but Paul starts with something that I, I imagine may have been difficult for him because it was very personal to him. And as the spiritual father, this might have looked like manipulation. I don't think it was, but it could have been viewed as manipulation. You know what he starts with? The example he starts with is the two-job thing. He starts with the two-job thing. So here we go. 1 Corinthians 9, we're going to start in verse 4. He says, don't we have the, what's the word? Right to food and drink. Don't we have that right? So when he shows up in Corinth, he had, he had a right to room and board. He says, we had a right to that form of compensation for the ministry with, that we were offering to you. And then he just kind of goes through the next few verses and gives examples of people and situations where people have that same right, but it's a different type of job. Look at verse seven. Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat its grapes? Who tends a flock and does not drink the milk? He's saying there are plenty of vocations where, where room and board is covered. If you're a shepherd protecting the flock, guiding the flock, you should be able to drink the milk that, that flock produces. If you own a vineyard, like you have the right to eat of those grapes. You have a right to drink of those grapes. But what, does he, what does he start with? What's the first one? Soldier, right? Like, Today, just think about like the American military today. It is absolutely ridiculous to think about 
signing up to serve your country and then your country going, yeah, you're going to have to take care of your own food. You're going to have to take care of your own board. You know, you, you get a hotel. <laughs> it's up to you, right? That sounds ridiculous to our ears. Even if it's a tent and an MRE, they provide room and board, right? And do you know, by the way, where the American military got that idea from? Rome. The Roman Empire. The Roman military. The, the military, the kind of soldier that Paul is talking about. Right here, he's saying, when we were with you in Corinth, we had the right to room and board. We had a right to those meals. And he keeps going with that same line of reasoning. Verse 9, for it is written in the law of Moses. Do not muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain. Then he asks a, he asks a great question. Is it about oxen that God is concerned? He's, he's pointing to this, um, again, Old Testament and even in Paul's day, where you take a yoke and you put it on the ox's neck. You connect it to a threshing stone. You put the harvest you know, on some hard ground, and then that ox rolls that threshing stone over the wheat over and over and over and over again, and it separates the grain from the shaft. There's an Old Testament law that said, don't muzzle an ox who's doing that. Don't put something over his mouth while he's doing that so he can, three letters, rhymes with meat, E-A-T, eat. He can eat, and Paul goes, do you really think that law was about your cows? <laughs> do you really think God is only concerned about farm animals? That's what he's saying. Again, you get the feeling that he's trying to make a case for something, don't you? Goes one step further. Verse 12, if others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? He's alluding to there, there are other teachers, other preachers that had moved through the area and demanded room and board. They're traveling preachers. They're traveling evangelists, whatever. We, we, we deserve this. And he says, just out of curiosity, if others had a right to have meals provided, shouldn't we, as your spiritual fathers, have that same right? Another example. Don't you know that those who serve in the temple get their food from the temple? He says, even in Jerusalem, where the temple is, the priests who serve there, they have a right to compensation for the work they do. And he pulls out the big guns. This last one, he quotes Jesus. In the same way, the Lord has commanded, Jesus commanded, that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. He's, um, he's alluding to the times the stories that you can read in the Gospels where Jesus sends out his disciples in pairs. One time he does it with the 12, one time he does it with the, with the 70 or the 72. And he gives them the instructions. When you go into a town, if that family or if a house welcomes you, receive that hospitality because a worker deserves his wages. That's, that's Jesus says that. He basically taught his disciples, that that benefit was available to them because they were the bearers of the gospel. So Paul, he's just laying out this, this five-fold argument one after the other. Soldiers have a right. Cows have a right. Traveling preachers have a right. Priests have a right. Jesus said that we have a right. Which brings us back to the question, Paul, if that's true, why did you work two jobs? 
Why did you work two jobs? Why didn't you just move to Corinth and, and take advantage of that? Because, again, nobody works two jobs for the fun of it. They work it out of necessity. Paul says, I had to write. I knew how to write. But in order to create the optimum environment where people can grow, I chose not to take that right. And here's his words. But we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than, read these last five words with me out loud, hinder the gospel of Christ. Paul says, if we had received room and board, it might have hindered the gospel. That's why I got two jobs. And you go, okay, how, how could it have hindered? Uh, in the first century, Greek and Roman culture, there was something called patronage. And we don't use that word as much anymore, but we do use the term patron of arts, right? Patron of arts is somebody who commissions a painting or a sculpture. They pay in order for an artist to take that. Um, you can... Um, a patron of the arts can pay for a wing to be added to a museum. Patron of the arts can pay for a concert to come to a city, right? That's what a patron of the arts does. That's a patronage. And oftentimes, that patron or that individual with the money has content control, right? If I'm going to pay for a wing in a museum, I want to at least be able to say what goes in the museum. If I'm going to pay for a concert to come to Topeka, I want to, I want to say who gets to perform at that concert. And so patrons have content control. Paul's heart was, I don't want anybody having content control over the gospel. I don't want someone providing room and board for me to have any control over what I say. Because you can imagine a scenario where, where someone pulls him aside and says, Paul, I'm so glad you're staying with us. Enjoy the meals that we have together. We love sharing our home with you. Stay as long as you'd like. But some of the things you keep saying are really ticking some people off. Like, it's making my boss mad. It's making our neighbors mad. Can we tone it down a bit? Three of the most dangerous words that Paul said over and over and over again, Jesus is Lord. And it was dangerous because Caesar already held that job description. And if you were a Roman citizen who appreciated your health and well-being, you didn't say anybody else is Lord but Caesar. So, staying with us, so glad you're here. Can you tone it down, the Jesus Lord thing, because you're going to end up in prison and we might too. By the way, Paul did end up in prison. He didn't want to deal with any kind of content control. And there may have been more reasons for that, but the reason of patronage, Paul gets to town, works a job making tents, preaching on the Sabbath, not because he didn't have the right to room and board, he did. He worked two jobs in order to create an optimal environment where people can grow. And, and do you know, did you see, we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything. In Greek, it's really interesting in Greek, that word anything, it means anything. Put up with anything. Why is he saying this? He's writing this because of the conflict. 
he's writing this because there are people coming from both sides of the perspectives. And they're looking at each other going, if only you were normal like me. And, and so-and-so goes to his niece's wedding at Apollo's temple. And he's looking at his lamb chops going, I cannot wait to dig into those puppies. And then a sister from the Jesus community comes up next to him and whispers in his ear, hey, did you know that was sacrificed to Poseidon earlier this week? Are you really going to eat that? And as he pushes away the plate, (laughs) maybe it's just me, but I can just hear in his spirit, but I have a right to eat this. Paul says, yep, you absolutely do. But don't you think you could go vegetarian for one meal if it means the accelerated growth of your sister in Christ? Is it possible that you just eat the Caesar salad today? And Paul says, exhibit A, I'm not just asking you to do something because I think you should do it. I'm asking you to do something because I've done it. I could have demanded. I had a right. But so it didn't hinder the gospel. I chose to set aside that right in order for someone else to grow in their faith. So here are the questions that I promised you. They are not fun questions. I'm just warning you. But they're necessary, okay? Question number one, what's the one holy discipline that if you applied yourself to it day after day, week after week, would make the biggest difference in your personal spiritual growth? Is there something, a habit, a practice, like we're in the season of Lent right now. What's the one thing that day after day, week after week, if you chose to start or maybe stop, that's fair would accelerate your spiritual growth. And, and I don't know what that is for you because I don't know what you do or don't do. I don't know your spiritual habits. But if you would like to explore that idea a little further, I offer two resources. Richard Foster's Celebration of Discipline and John Ortberg's The Life You've Always Wanted. I read John Ortberg's book, this book, every year because I have to be reminded of this every single year. If you don't, have, if you don't want to go crazy, read them both. You don't have time to read or listen to one. I would recommend Celebration of Discipline. It just goes through these century-old practices, these century-old habits that we need to either discover or maybe rediscover, some of us, that help us grow in our faith, with all the technological noise available to us, we need these practices like never before. So I offer that to you. You, you, you won't notice a difference in a week. You're not going to notice a difference in two months. But month after month, day after day, year after year, you'll find a profound growth and depth to your faith if you committed to it. What's that thing? What's that habit? What's that practice? That if you did it again and again and again and again, you'd see your faith grow. Do you know what that is? And if not, are you willing to get up 10 minutes earlier? Now you're just meddling, preacher. Are you willing to leave your phone on airplane mode for 15 minutes a day? 
Are you willing to read a book? Are you willing to listen to a book if you're not a reader? Are you willing to figure out? Are you willing to put up with anything in order for the gospel not to be hindered in your own life? What's that discipline? First question. Second question isn't about your growth. Second question is more about creating the kind of environment where others can grow because the you, 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 and me forms an us, right? I'm going to ask you, are you willing to set aside your rights to help us create an environment where other people grow? And I'm not even asking you to do it. I'm just asking, are you willing? Are you willing to do that? Because I've, I've found as you grow in your personal faith, there will often be times when you come to a fork in the road where you say, I have a right to do this. There's nothing in my conscience that says I shouldn't do this. But this way might actually help someone else grow in their faith. So I'm going to set aside my right and I'm going to go this way instead. I think that, that the sign of spiritual maturity is not how much you know. The sign of spiritual maturity is how much you love. That's over and over and over and over again. So what does that look like in a church? Um, I have a right to be appreciated for all of the times that I've served. I have a right to recognition. But I'm going to set that aside. I'm going to set that right aside. Like this is, it's not just churches. I mean, it's businesses, it's teams, it maybe even marriage, families. It's amazing what can happen in organizations, in churches, in teams, in businesses when nobody cares who gets the credit. It's amazing. It's amazing what can happen. Um, and, and one of the reasons I know this because of the seat that I sit in. I, I, I have a seat that I can see far and wide, okay? One of the reasons that Grace Point Church is as healthy as it is, and we are not at optimum health, don't hear that. But the level of health we've reached so far is because of people who have decided to set aside their rights. I've, I have been here for 20 plus years, and I see it over and over and over and over again. It's people who've said, I have a right to attend church that meets my needs, I have a right to attend a church that plays the kind of music I like. I have a right to attend a church that never says anything about money. I have a right to stay in a small group with people I like and I know and I'm comfortable with. I have a right to manage my weekend any way I want. But I'm going to set aside those rights in order to create an environment where other people can grow. We will thrive or die as a church as to the degree that we think that way. I believe it to my bones. Some of you, good example. Some of you, you're starting to weigh whether or not to go with Pastor Mark and Tara to start rooted community church. We can now start saying that out loud publicly. Okay? Some of you are starting to weigh whether or not to do that or whether to stay. Here's the great news. You have a right to go. And you have a right to stay. There's no right or wrong answer. Praise him. But here's what I just want you to, I just want it to settle into your spirit. Grace Point Church will thrive. 
Rooted community church will thrive when we decide or as we decide. I have these rights, but I'm choosing to set them aside in order to create the kind of church where anybody and everybody can grow. Like, I I know that sounds like preacher exaggeration, but I cannot overstate the gravity of your answer to that question. (laughs) I just can't. And I can't measure it either. I can't measure it. It's not emotional. It's hard to, 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 to put my finger on it sometimes, but there, there is one thing that you can embrace that helps your home church become the kind of environment where it's, it's not, well, you have to get from here to here. There's steps. There's these little easy steps to take. You don't have to jump from the ground floor to the fifth step. Just take that first step right there. And that is more about us than it is about me. It's more about we than it is about me. What kind of environment are we going to be? What activity, what behavior, what attitude, what habit can you embrace to help us become a greenhouse for spiritual growth? That's my challenge to you today. It's my question for you today because, again, our individual habits, our individual attitudes, our individual behaviors form the us. It forms the we that is we. And that is not like, <laughs> that is not a message that you are going to hear outside of the gospel. What you're going to hear outside of the gospel is be all you can be. It's about you. Pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Figure it out. It's, you're, you're the man. You're the woman, right? And then you come to, the, you come to scripture and it's like, no, there's this we there's this us. Okay, I'm done. I need to pray. That's all I got to say. Jesus, would you help us with this? Um, and maybe, maybe it's not right now. Maybe it's tomorrow. Maybe it's Wednesday. Maybe it's a month from now. But Holy Spirit, would you in only the way you can just impress this upon our hearts that, that what What we do, what I do, doesn't just affect me, it affects us. It affects we. And it affects those who maybe don't even know that they need you, don't even know that they need to grow in you. So God, would you help us? Would you point us to that that thing, that discipline, that... um, that quiet time, that silence, that repentance, that solitude, whatever it is that we need to start developing right now in order to grow in our faith and then in order to help others around us grow in theirs. God, thank you for your word. Um, Thank you for people like Paul that just, (laughs) just say it how it is. And then helps us wrestle with it, helps us look around in practical ways. But more than anything, we thank you for Jesus, the one who makes this available, the one who died so that we could have access to our Father in heaven. We love you, we praise you, and we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Peace out.